So the fifth practice given under the first foundation of mindfulness is the four elements. I'll read you what the Buddha says. Again, one reviews this body, however it may be placed or disposed, in terms of the elements. There are in this body the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element. So these are the classical four elements. Um, You can look at them in the classical way where they're symbolic, or you can look look at them in a more modern way where they're also symbolic. But what you don't want to do is look at them literally. Okay? Um, Perhaps they took it much more literally in ancient times, both Greece and in the time of the Buddha. But these really represent qualities that objects share, material objects. Earth represents solidity. It also, at the time of the Buddha, was thought to represent extension. For example, when I hold this out, it extends because of the earth element in it. It doesn't droop down or anything. So it's the earth element that enables it to extend out. Water represents liquidity, but also at the time of the Buddha, it represented cohesion. Think of flour. You know, as a pile of flour, you blow on it, it blows away. If you mix water with the flour, it sticks together. So, same thing with dirt becoming mud. So, water was thought of as cohesive. Air was thought of as air, gaseous element, but also motion. So, like the wind blowing, it moves things along, things like that. And then fire was thought of as heat. Now, having a background in physics that I acquired in the 20th century, I tend to interpret them as solid, liquid, gas, energy. Just plain, simple like that. Nothing fancy about cohesion and whether motion and, and heat are energy but are in different elements. Okay, so earth is just solidity. The fact that something has a fixed volume and shape. Right? And liquidity is water. Something has a fixed volume, but it tends to use gravity to pick up its shape. And then gas is air. It's not only the air, but any other gases that are around. Uh, Not a fixed volume or a fixed shape. And then fire is just energy in all sorts, whether it's motion energy or heat energy or light energy. it's, It's all considered fire. And if we look at our bodies, however they are placed or disposed, we see that we have solid bits, we have liquid bits, we have gaseous bits, and there's energetic bits, there's heat bits. I mean, you can think about your temperature, 98.6. And the things around us also are like that. We have a simile. Just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice, having slaughtered a cow, were to sit at a crossroads with a carcass divided into portions, so one reviews this very body in terms of the elements. Now, the first thing to notice is that uh, at the time of the Buddha, there were no sacred cows in India. If you were to go to India today and slaughter a cow and sit at the crossroads, things would go very badly for you. Okay, But there were no sacred cows at his time. That's a later invention. But 
the picture here is of pieces. You don't, when you go to the butcher shop, you don't look and say, oh, look at that cow, right? You see flank steak or hamburger or whatever, okay? But you're not seeing the cow, you're seeing the pieces. Can you look at your own body in the same way that you look at pieces of meat in the butcher shop, all right? The solid bits, the liquid bits, etc. This again is a, an attempt to help you disidentify with the body, to see the impermanent nature of it, and to see that ain't nobody home. It's just a bunch of pieces. Okay. Any questions about the four elements? Just as a little general thing before we start, I'm going to do a guided meditation. So I'm because I have a science background, I'm going to tend to talk about them in terms of. Solid liquid gas and energy. Yeah. Can someone pass the microphone back? <coughs> On the bottom, I think. Uh, what I was going to ask was uh, uh, when when I practice the four elements, I look for them in my body, in my meditation, and right. uh, and I, I, I actually uh, I don't know, invite them in or invoke what they represent, and uh, and uh, anyway, I just I hadn't occurred to me to think. I mean, I know <laughs> how do I say this? Um, they're very revealing. That's what I want to say. Because yeah, I really do see that I'm just these little parts that are flying around each other, and I'm just you know, kind of a whirlwind or something. I don't know. Yeah. Seems like. Yeah. But, no. Exactly. That's the whole purpose of this meditation is to get you to that space. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Right. So, if there are no other questions, then let's do a guided meditation on the four elements. <coughs> In order to begin, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. Let go of the attention on the breath and become aware of the solid pieces of your body. You can probably feel the bones of your fingers. You can feel the solidity of your teeth. If you start scanning through your body, you can notice other bones. Your legs, arms your torso. So just scan your attention through your body looking for the solid bits.
Notice especially the sits bones, your weight pressing down on those bones. They're solid. Now notice what you're sitting upon. It too is solid. It's not rock solid. But it too has earth elements. If your feet are touching the floor, you can feel the solidity of the floor. And you can also feel the solidity in your feet. Earth element contacting earth element. Now imagine you were to stand up and start walking. If you look carefully, you can notice the solidity in your feet touching the solidity of the floor. If you put on your shoes, you can feel the solidity of your shoes encompassing the solidity of your feet. And then if you start to go outside, you push against the door. You notice its earth element with the earth element in your hand. You push the door open and you walk outside. There's lots of examples of earth element outside. There's the earth itself. There are trees. You can wrap your arms around a tree and feel how solid it is. There are all the buildings, cars, they all have earth element, they all have solid bits. If you walk around the block, you'll notice quite a lot of examples of earth element. You see a squirrel scampering up a tree. He's got earth element in his bones as well. You see a bird flying. The bones aren't solid in that they're hollow, but they're still earth element. So imagine that you walk around the block noticing all possible things that are earth element. Man-made and natural. Now become aware of yourself once again sitting in this room and see if you can notice the water element in your body. The easiest, of course, is going to be the saliva in your mouth. If you get really still, you might notice your heartbeat pumping the water element blood through your system.
In fact, if you remember your high school biology, you are three-quarters water. Once again, if you were to get up and go outside in this neighborhood, it might not be easy to notice large amounts of water, but you can certainly see evidence of water. Whatever green growing things you encounter are growing because there's water supply available. If you go back to that tree, you might find some sap. That's water element. That sap is doing the same thing for the tree that your blood does for you. Moving nutrients around. Your water element, the tree's water element. Any animals that you see, they too will be mostly water. And they're all certainly dependent upon water. In your walk around the block, you probably can notice a lot of things that are evidence that there's water. And you might even see some water, a puddle or something. Put your hand in, feel how it's wet. In fact, this planet is misnamed. It's really the planet water, not the planet Earth, since three quarters of it is covered with water. Again, become aware of yourself sitting in the room and see if you can notice the air element in your body. The easiest, of course, is going to be your breathing. Air coming in, air going out. But there's other gases within your system sometimes more noticeable than others. And then there's the fact that there's 14 and a half pounds of pressure per square inch on your body, preventing you from exploding. You may not think the atmosphere is part of you, but if they take the atmosphere away, it would get really unpleasant very fast. Now again, imagine that you stand up and start walking towards the door. You can feel the air brushing past your body. 
We live at the bottom of a giant ocean of air. You go outside, you feel a breeze. Well, you feel it because there's air brushing against your body. You hug that tree again, you can feel it swaying in the breeze. The air pushing the tree back and forth. And that tree is inhaling your carbon dioxide and exhaling the oxygen that you need. If you see a bird flying, he's being supported by the air. Any clouds you see, again, they're floating in the air. Lots of examples of air element on your walk around the block. Now, once again, become aware of yourself sitting in this room and see if you can notice the fire element within yourself. Perhaps the easiest is to notice your hands. The part that's exposed to the air may feel slightly cooler than the part that's actually touching something. But there's heat all throughout your body. Otherwise, you wouldn't maintain that 98.6 degree temperature. If you go outside and you forgot your coat, It feels cold. Not enough fire element for your taste. Of course, if you step into the sunshine, it feels warmer. Fire element coming at you from 93 million miles away. If you find a rock that's been lying in the sun... You put your hand on the rock, nice and warm. Now turn it over, nice and cool. More fire element on one side than the other. As you're walking around the block, you're expending energy. That's fire element. And of course, all those cars going by, that's energy. And all those wires carrying electricity, that's energy. 
Lots of examples of fire element out there. If you can find a nice steep hill to walk up, you can really notice the elements within you. There's the bones of your legs and feet striking the earth element of the earth you're walking up. And as you start walking, you start wanting more air element, breathing harder. And you start getting hot, more fire element, and so you start sweating or water element. And as you walk up that hill, all four elements become quite obvious. And if you're walking up the hill in the sunshine with the wind blowing, you can see the elements internally and externally quite easily. Inside of us are these four elements. Outside of us, these four elements. The quality of a thing being solid, solidity, is the same inside as outside. And the same for the rest of the elements. So, any questions on how you would do this as a practice? I mean, literally getting up and going outside and walking around and observing the elements. You can do this for walking meditation. If you're walking back and forth, instead of lifting, moving, placing, you can simply pick one of the elements and notice earth, 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 earth. Do a few rounds of earth and then switch to another element and notice that. So if you're tired of lifting, moving, placing and it's time to do walking meditation, you can do four elements. You can definitely do four elements practice when going for a walk. Now you're on a retreat and you want to take a walk, but you want to keep your mindfulness going. This is a very good practice to do. You can simply pick an element and just everywhere you look, Look to see what are examples of earth element or fire element or whichever one you pick. You can do a whole walk on a single element or you can switch off whenever you feel like it. Or you can just go, well, I'll notice all the elements. And whatever comes up, you analyze it in terms of the elements, internally and externally. So any questions on how you would do this as a practice? Good. Go do it. All right. You can go outside and you can walk around the block and you can look at the elements. It's two o'clock now. I'll give you half an hour to take your elements outside into the fresh air and experience the other elements. 
wake you up after your lunch. Okay, so I'll see everybody back at 2.30 for the next of the practices. you all had a nice element walk. One of the key things about element practice is to get to the point where you stop thingifying. Right? I mean, look around the room, you see a bunch of things, right? There's people, there's chairs, there's cushions, there's water glass, bowl, lights, things. Right? But if you start looking in terms of elements, can you get to the point where Solidity, liquidity, heat, air, right? And you stop making the things. Because remember, in reality, there are no things per se. The thinginess of the universe is something that we make up because it's handy. This chair, right? This is metal and I guess that's synthetic or wool or something like that and some padding of some sort in there. Probably got some plastic buried in there. We put it together into this form and we call it a chair. If you come from a culture where they don't have chairs, you're like, what is this? It's a bus shelter for pygmies, but they put this weird thing that sticks up in the back or something. All right. It's only a chair because we make it a chair. All right. So everything in the universe is that way. Now, there are some sort of natural dividing lines, okay? I'm not going to say that it's all solidly connected, but it's all interconnected. If you take a wooden table, I mean, think about a wooden table. It used to be a tree, and then it became lumber, and then it became a table, and then eventually the table wears out and becomes firewood, and then after it's burned, it becomes, well, carbon dioxide for some tree to breathe again. Mother Nature is simply running a gigantic recycling project. And all these things out here are only temporarily things. They're all moving through. And if you can practice seeing them other than things, and this four element practice is a way to do that, then you're beginning to get a deeper understanding of what the nature of reality actually is. Okay. Now, like all of these, you do it internally, externally. So that's why we were looking inside and outside of ourselves. Yeah. So the thing that's always confused me about the element practice is that um, It seems to me that the way we perceive these things always comes down to the two elements, which is temperature and pressure, which, mm-hmm. as I understand it, is fire and earth. And even, you know, how do you know the wind is blowing? You know the wind is blowing because you feel the pressure on your face and you feel the temperature of the wind. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you perceive the other two elements? <laughs> it depends on where you want to draw the lines. I had a friend who said that the entire universe is made up of angle and frequency. You know, he's right. That's all there is, is angles and frequencies. But I, I find 
difficult to go out there and actually experience the world as angles and frequencies. It's only I have to stop and look, think back. So find what seems natural to you. And if water, you know, sticking your hand in water, what you're really experiencing is pressure and temperature, then that's fine. That's what you're experiencing. There's nothing particularly sacred about there being four elements. If you can get it into two and start seeing the world in a way that is less thingy, right? Then, then you're accomplishing what this is. If it takes you six physical elements, all right? Well, it's not what the Buddha talked about. They only had four physical elements in those days, all right? But fine, if you need six, all right, make up your own thing. This is symbolism to get you out of your habitual way of looking at the universe. And that's the key thing, all right? Whatever symbols work for you. So, use two, use four, whatever. Any other questions on the four element practice? In the back. No, the mind is, they had the four physical elements, and then they had the space element. All right, so the space in this room, not, not talking about the air in the room, but the space. Okay, so that's, they considered that an element. That was the fifth element. The sixth element was mind or consciousness. All right, so the cognitive mind would be sixth element, but it's not a material element. Exactly. I mean, your brain consumes an enormous amount of the energy that your body is expending. So, yeah, there is fire element that's happening there. But that's, that's the running of the machinery. Okay, but the actual mind itself is considered a sixth element. Right. I was thinking they were all dependent on each other. So yes. I was noticing water in the gutter. And the water wouldn't be in the gutter were it not for you know, the gutter, the concrete. Right. And same with you know, gas pipes and water pipes. And right. Fire doesn't burn without oxygen. Oxygen, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, everything is dependent on everything else. Excellent. That's one of the most important insights on the spiritual path is the interdependence. Yeah, very good. One of the things that I found hard to separate when I was walking was seeing that most things had bits of all of those elements. And so it was hard for me to even separate. It was like, well, there's earth, there's air, there's fire. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, In fact, the ancients described everything as having all four elements. Some things had it in excess. For example, water had the water element in excess. But, you know, you put your hand in the water, it's got a temperature, right? I mean, it's not frozen solid, so it's got a temperature. And you push against it, you can feel the resistance. That's the earth element in the water, etc. So they spoke of them as having, everything having that in it. In fact, there's a great book by Tan Jeff called The Mind Like Fire Unbound, which talks about the fire element was considered in something. So this 
piece of wood has fire element in it. And when it catches on fire, it's the fire element is escaping from it. Okay, so they had a sort of different way of thinking about things like that. It's a great book. If you're going to pick up a free book someplace and you see that one available, you know, I, that one gets a 10. Yeah, it just seemed like everything was a transition of one thing to another so that even something that seemed like there was no energy, it's like this potential energy so that it's, right. it, it has the seed of one or the other thing. Right. Yeah, very good. Now, this is a pretty amazing practice if you take it only at seeing the four elements. But if you can see the implications of dethingifying and interconnectedness and all the transition states and everything, it's great. I was thinking that in terms of the water that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. that containing all the elements and, and water, you know, certainly, it, you know, if you... Evaporate water, you've got the solids left in it. There's, right. There's solids dissolved in it and gases dissolved in it. You know, that's how fish breathe. And that's how we breathe. Our blood carries dissolved oxygen in it. So. Right. Yeah. It's, it's much more complicated than you thought and simpler than you thought. It's, well, not what you thought. <laughs> okay. Five down and never mind. Okay. <laughs> All right. The next are the nine charnel ground contemplations. Charnel ground is a place where if you weren't rich enough to have a cremation, they took your body and dumped it when you died. Not like a cemetery. Cemetery is a nice place, right? Cut the grass, all these little statues and monuments. and That's a good place. You know, one of my friends pointed out when I was traveling, if you can't find a place to stay, you can always go sleep in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to come bother you. <laughs> he was right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a great place. Um, charnel ground, dead bodies, rotting corpses, vultures, jackals. Doesn't smell good. Quite a different place. A good place to meditate, according to the Buddha. Again, as if one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground. One, two, or three days dead, bloated, discolored, festering, and compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature. It will become like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as if one were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside, eaten by crows, hawks, or vultures, by dogs or jackals or various other creatures, and compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature. It will become like that. It is not exempt from that fate. Again, as if one were to see a corpse in a charnel ground thrown aside, a skeleton with flesh and blood connected by sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood connected by sinews, a skeleton detached from flesh and blood connected by sinews, randomly connected bones scattered in all directions, a hand bone here, a foot bone there, a shin bone here, a thigh bone there, a hip bone here, a spine here, a skull there, and compares this body with that. Again, as if one were to see a corpse in a charnel ground, thrown aside the bones whitened looking like shells, the bones piled up a year old, the bones rotted away to powder, and compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature, it will become like that, it is not exempt from this fate. So these are considered nine different practices. In the sutta, 
the refrain is given after each practice. And the way you would do this at the time of the Buddha, you'd be sent to the charnel ground. This was the practice they gave to those of a lustful temperament. All right, so they'd send them to the charnel ground and they would tell you first, go find somebody recently dead. Someone, a corpse thrown aside on charnel ground, one, two or three days dead, bloated, discolored, festering. Sit there and look at that corpse for the day. That's your meditation practice. Compare your body with that. Compare the body of that one you're lusting after with this because that's what's going to happen to their body as well. And then the next day they send you back again to get a more dead one and even more decayed and so you would go and you would work for a while with one of these and then you would come back another time and work with another. So they were considered nine different practices. We don't have charnel grounds around here so you can't really do this sort of practice but we do have some opportunities. If you go hiking in the woods you might find some animal that's recently died and you can look at its discolored, festering, bloated, falling apart body and realize that yours is going to do the same thing. You might come across, you know, just scattered bones someplace. There's the possibility of going to an autopsy. If you know the right person to contact, you can view an autopsy. There are medical schools in the Bay Area. You, they do autopsies from time to time. So if you really want to do this, it's possible to do it. It's a different setting, but it gives you a sense of, yeah, there's more than meets the eye. And of course, on the internet, there's a virtual charnel ground. There's a website where someone, a monastic, donated their body and there were pictures taken as their corpse rots away and you can look at the pictures. If you really want to visit that charnel ground, uh, you can go to my website, which is leighb.com, and click on my bookmarks, and then scroll down to you find the Buddhism part, and then scroll through that, rummage through that, and you'll find a link to the charnel ground. If you can't find it, you can send me an email. But uh, there are ways to actually work with this. And actually, you notice it says, as if one were to see. Having seen rotting bodies in various forms, you could sit down, close your eyes and use your imagination to see what it would be like and meditate on this imagery, this visualization. So that would be another way to do it. And so this is counted as nine of the practices. So now we're much further along. Fourteen down, seven to go. Any questions on this practice? Yes, uh, there's a mic here. Um, this is kind of a side question, I guess, because I, I was just wondering what um, religious or spiritual groups of people in the past or even present day, I think in present day India, there's still charnel grounds. Oh, yeah. And um, I was wondering um, what religious groups those like, is that a really a Buddhist tradition? Or mm -hmm. It is. <laughs> yeah, you can go to Tibet and see Buddhist charnel, charnel grounds. There was one outside of Lhasa when I was there. However, uh, if you went to visit it, the guys who ran it would come after you with your, their meat cleavers and chase you away. You'd have to be pretty brave to actually get to visit the charnel ground. There's one on the circumambulation route around Mount Kailash. 
So if you can do the circumambulation of Mount Kailash, this is a charnel ground. Mount Kailash is in western Tibet. It's a pilgrimage spot. In India, you don't so much find charnel grounds as cremation spots. But you go watch a cremation, you know, they set the pyre on fire and, you know, eventually you see a foot sticking out or an arm sticking out. It, it's, it's definitely worth doing. I mean, India is a very amazing place. And if you're in India, go to Varanasi and go to the burning ghats where they're doing cremations. Uh, so in Hindu places, it's pretty easy to still see cremations. I don't know if there are charnel grounds left anywhere else that are really accessible, but as late as the 50s, there were charnel grounds still in Thailand. And Ajahn Chah writes about a night he spent in a charnel ground that's really a very brilliant story if you ever get a chance to read it. Um, it's in one of his books. The title escapes me at the moment. It was in The Inquiring Mind some 10 years ago or something like that. But, yeah, there were charnel grounds quite available in, say, as late as the 50s, early 60s. Uh, not so much anymore. But this and is what, what they do. what about the Jain religion? I think they do cremations, but I'm not certain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you know, they might leave people's bodies out, but I'm not sure either. Yeah, I mean, there are places where they do sky burials, where they leave a body out. I don't know if the Jains practice that or not. Other questions on the nine charnel ground contemplations? Usually when I discuss this, there are not a lot of questions. People are ready to move on. The Buddha definitely set a great store by realizing the fact that you're going to die. I mean, that's the one thing you know for certain. I'm going to die. Right? I mean, you might think, well, I'm going to get in my car and go home, but, you know, it might not happen. Meteor might come down and squish us all. We'd be dead. You are going to die. It's the one thing you know, and it's the one thing you're least likely to think about. We are weird creatures for sure. Okay, so that's the first foundation of mindfulness. These, it's given here as six practices. The breath, the postures, mindfulness of activities, parts of the body, the elements, and then the nine charnel ground contemplations. First foundation. The second foundation is contemplation of Vedana. Vedana is translated, as I say, as feelings. However, it does not mean emotions. You will often hear it described that way, particularly on the left coast of the United States, where somehow uh, that idea has caught on that Vedana means emotions, but it doesn't. There's no indication anywhere in the suttas that Vedana means emotions. It very much means pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral reaction to a sense impression. Okay, so if I strike the bell and I do a nice job of it, pleasant, right? If I strike it really hard, no, I won't do that. Uh, it would be unpleasant. That's hearing Vedana. The sound was pleasant, or the sound, if it's fingernails on the blackboard, unpleasant. That's all that's meant by Vedana. 
Now, your emotional reaction of getting angry at somebody scratching their fingernails down the blackboard, that comes later down the line and actually is part of the third foundation. But here, it's just knowing your reaction to sense impressions. I'll read you what the Buddha has to say. And how does one abide contemplating Vedana as Vedana? Here, experiencing a pleasant Vedana, one knows that one experiences a pleasant Vedana. Experiencing a, pleas- a, a painful Vedana, one knows that one experiences a painful Vedana. Experiencing a Vedana that is neither painful nor pleasant, one knows that one is experiencing a Vedana that is neither painful nor pleasant. Experiencing a pleasant sensual Vedana, one knows that one experiences a pleasant sensual Vedana. Experience a pleasant non-sensual Vedana, one knows that one experiences a pleasant non-sensual Vedana. Experiencing a painful sensual Vedana, experience a painful non-sensual Vedana, experiencing a sensual Vedana that is neither pleasant nor painful, experiencing a non-sensual Vedana that is neither pleasant nor painful. One knows what one is experiencing. All right, so the basic categories, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, or as we would say, neutral. And then if you want to further subdivide it, you could break each of those into, it says here, sensual and non-sensual. The poly word is like with flesh or with not, not with flesh. Um, and again, the commentators have discussions about what that actually means. In Analayo's book, he uses worldly and unworldly, or you could think of it as worldly and spiritual. Or you could think of it as sensual, associated with the body, and non-sensual, associated with the mind. So it's not really quite clear which is intended here. Um, Most likely, it's those associated with the uh, world, the worldly life, and those associated with the spiritual life. But that's just a guess on my part. We don't really know for sure. But the key thing is to know the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. And that's the second foundation of mindfulness. This one little narrow gap. When we experience any sense impression at all, there is the sense object. For example, you look up here and... Okay, you look here and you see the door. Right? That's the sense object. There's the sense organ, which is your eye. And then there's sense consciousness, that which knows. Right? So there has to be an object, or you can't see it. You have to have a working eye, or you can't see it. And there has to be consciousness of that. Now, to give you an example of consciousness, I want everybody to look at my nose. Stare intently at my nose. Right? Look really carefully at my nose. Now, Become aware of what was in your peripheral vision. Whatever was in your peripheral vision was there all along. But when you were staring intently at my nose, you didn't notice what was in your peripheral vision. You weren't conscious of what was in your peripheral vision, right? It's only when I told you to shift your attention to it. So the objects were there, your eye was still there, but you weren't noticing because of the lack of sense consciousness. All right, so when you brought your consciousness to it, then you actually had the sense impression. So that's step one, the coming together of these three, the object, the organ, 
and sense consciousness. That's followed immediately by a Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Okay? If it's a sound, it's pretty easy to tell. I strike the bell, sounds nice. I scratch my fingernails on the blackboard, doesn't sound pleasant. You know, I just start talking up here about anything in random and not making much sense. The sounds are okay, but you get bored. That's because it doesn't stop with the Vedana. Following the Vedana is perception, sanya. Perception is the ability to name things or identify them. So you look up here and you go, Buddha, flower, flower, bell, person, door. Right? So you have the ability to name things. Um, can people see in the back by the restroom the, the signs with the man and the woman standing there? Can people see the man and woman back there? Can you see that? There's no man and woman back there. It's a colored shape that's back there. The perception of man and woman is happening in your head. Your eye sees only colored shapes. Right? So it picks out the colored shapes and you look it up in your database and go, oh, that kind of shape, that's a man, and that kind of shape, that's a woman. All right? So that's what perception is. It's taking your sense impressions, looking up in your database of objects, and putting the name of the object on it. That's perception. That's then followed by mental formations, your thoughts and emotions about this thing. So you see something, the seeing produces a Vedana, and then you identify what it is that you've seen, and then you start thinking and emoting around it. Well, now, remember in Buddhism, they talk about six senses. Well, that thinking and emoting is sensory input to the sixth sense. And when you have that sixth sense input, there's a sixth sense Vedana. Right? So there's the Vedana associated with the thoughts that come from it. All right, which produce more thoughts and emotions. So most of the Vedana, when there's an external sense impression, comes from the pleasant or unpleasant thoughts that you think as a result of having had that external sense impression. So if I ring the bell, and you're having a really great meditation, and you don't want the bell to ring, you're disappointed, you wish it hadn't happened. The sound was very pleasant. But because of your thoughts of, I didn't want to interrupt my meditation, I was right on the verge of enlightenment. It's an unpleasant experience. Or you're having a terrible meditation, right? And you can't wait for the bell to ring. They ring the bell and you're so happy. Same sound as the other person had, but now your downstream thoughts as a reaction to this are pleasant. And so the experience is pleasant. Most often we are aware only of our downstream thoughts. We're not aware of the actual external sensory Vedana that happen. We ignore those in terms of our awareness. Now, the external sensory Vedana definitely drag us around. Um, for example, the house I grew up in had a tile kitchen. And the tiles consisted of large blue squares and small, dark orange squares. Dark blue, dark orange. Uh, I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> we moved into this house when I was, I guess, around four years old. And my mom would go into the kitchen to light the pilot light on the stove in the morning. 
and she'd bend over and she'd start to throw up. She thought she was pregnant. Right? And one morning she couldn't get it lit. She was so nauseated. So she went to get my father and he goes in there and bends over and he gets nauseated and he knew he wasn't pregnant. Right? It was that first thing in the morning, those blue and orange tiles were different heights. And it was literally nauseating. You did not want to go in the kitchen until you were fully awake because it would make you nauseated. Your, your body couldn't handle it. it. The perception didn't, you know, didn't fit. So it was producing quite unpleasant vedna as a physical thing. You've seen colors, perhaps in abstract paintings, that don't match. All right? This is the visual unpleasant vedna. All right? <clears throat> The sounds, the bell is a pleasant, the fingernails on the blackboard is an unpleasant. But mostly we hear sounds and we run off on the story associated with the sounds. So if I were to say something like uh, pine trees, well, that may produce a pleasant emotion, right? Okay. Um, but the sound of my voice, there wasn't much in that. Right. If I say something like uh, uh, small shrubs, same sort of reaction. I say something like uh, green bushes, same sort of reaction. Say something like George bushes, different reaction. Right. The words were said the same way, but downstream you had a different reaction. It might have been more pleasant. It might have been less pleasant. Right? But your mind identified this and then it fed back in and you got mental Vedana coming in. Different from small bushes and George bushes. Right? So mostly what we see is the mental Vedana. But what we want to do is pay attention to all of the Vedana. Because the Vedana are what drag us around. We lead our lives as though the instruction manual said, seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. Right? I mean, that's how we're living our lives. This is what we're up to. The seek pleasure, find the pleasant Vedana. The avoid pain, keep the unpleasant Vedana away. That's what's going on. That's how we lead our lives. Right? Running after the pleasant Vedana, running away from the unpleasant Vedana. Now, what the Buddha pointed out in his teaching on dependent origination is that it's the Vedana that leads to the craving. It's pleasant. You want it. And then you want to keep it. That's the uh, clinging that comes from it. And then you constitute yourself as the one who owns it. You've just given birth to yourself. And because you have a self there, then you're going to experience Old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and all the rest of the dukkha. So it was all back there triggered by the Vedana. Once the craving set in, it's pretty hard to let go. You're constituting a self. And if there's a self, it's going to have dukkha. Can you experience the pleasant Vedana without the craving? Remember, first noble truth, there's dukkha. Second noble truth, the dukkha arises because of craving. If you don't want dukkha, third noble truth, don't crave. All right? So, can you experience the pleasant things in life without any craving? Can you just be there for the pleasant experiences? Often what happens is there's a pleasant experience 
And we're thinking about how to keep it or get more of it or bottle it and sell it, right? As opposed to experiencing the pleasant experience. I'm not making this up. I was in New Zealand. I was on top of a mountain. Incredible view. And this couple walked in front of me and he was busy taking pictures like crazy. And she turned to me and apologized. They were Americans. I could tell from the accent. And she said to me, oh, excuse us. We like to take lots of pictures when we're on vacation. So when we go home, we can enjoy our vacation. <laughs> like, okay. You know, it's like they were trying to bottle the pleasant experience and take it home and miss the pleasant experience. This is what we do in our lives. So this is why this is so important. The Buddha says, notice the pleasant experiences. He doesn't say reject them. He says, just be there with them. Notice the unpleasant experiences. He doesn't say reject them or embrace them. Just notice them. Notice also that there's a reaction to the mind, an initial reaction, even if it's a neutral experience. Most often the reaction is, don't care. You know, we just ignore it. So our ignorance arises from ignoring what's really going on. Because it didn't produce pleasant, we don't lust after it. Because it didn't produce unpleasant, we're not trying to push it away. We're just there looking for the good ones and ignoring the neutral ones and running from the bad ones. So... We want to train ourselves with this, what's happening with the Vedna. Now, the Vedna happened in the old brain. You don't have any control over it. You can't, as many times as you practice, make the sound of fingernails on the blackboard sound good. You know, it's just the brain is wired that way. It's going to sound bad. But between when the Vedna sets in and when the craving takes off, there is a gap. And that's where we need to work. And the closer you can work to where the Vedna is, the better chance you have of not getting caught with the craving. So that's why it's so important to pay attention to the Vedna. All right, that was a long introduction to Vedana. Questions about Vedana, and then we'll do a guided meditation on it. So in the back, somebody have a mic? <laughs> Well, that was a lot. I have a lot of questions. When <laughs> I'll limit them. When you were talking about um, the stories that come up and then the Vedanas that are after that, is, are, is that the third foundation? No. This, all right. You've got the four foundations, and the first one is body, and the second one is Vedana. The third one is the emotions, the mind states that arise. But the fourth one is a broader category. So it, and then, then you've got sense impressions. You've got the body with the sense organ and you've got the Vedana and then you've got the identifying, the perception and you've got the thoughts and emotions. So these are, they're, they're slices sort of like this. Okay. They don't line up in parallel. They, they sort of overlap a bit, but then they go off in different directions. So the Buddha would take one view through the thing and describe it, and then he would take another view through it. His teachings are, are more holographic, so it, just because you find some parts that fit, don't try and lay all the parts on there. This is a frequent thing that people try and do. So remember, you're getting different slices through the bigger picture. Okay, 
that helps to know that I'll understand it later more fully. Another, one other question I'll ask is um, when you're talking about the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and you were talking about seeing and hearing, does that apply also to all the senses? All six all senses. Six senses, including the mind. Right. Okay. Yeah. We want to taste pleasant tastes. You know, you don't want to taste the rotten fruit. You want the pleasant taste. You want to smell the nice smells. You want to touch the pleasant textures. You know, you don't want to rub your hand over razor blades. All right. And you want to think nice thoughts. I mean, that's what we do, except when we turn on the news. Right. Then we get a chance to have the six o'clock Duca report full of all sorts of bad thoughts for us to think. All right. But mostly we want pleasant thoughts in our mind. Yeah. So in all six senses, we're looking for the pleasant, looking to avoid the unpleasant. Other questions on Vedana? Yes. With respect to the sixth Vedana, mm-hmm. which is the mind, that actually comes downstream to some degree, right? Or is, are, are there cases where that would just arise on its own? It would just be mental formations that occur. Usually what we think and emote about is related back to some sort of external sensory impression. But, I mean, you may have noticed you're sitting there and you're meditating and you're, you're not picking up thoughts from outside or sounds or anything else. You're just following your breath and suddenly you find yourself off in this thought train. It seemed like it just came up internally. You know, it wasn't a sound. It wasn't your boss's voice or a picture of your boss or anything. But you're arguing with him there. And so it does seem like some of it, if you've turned down the external senses, can just sort of pop up in the mind. Yeah. But, of course, now we look back, the reason you're having that argument with your boss is because that in reality you did have an argument and there were unpleasant sounds coming into your ear and that look on his face was definitely unpleasant and all the other stuff. So I don't think any of it is purely from the mind, but it may pop up without a a trigger that happens really close in time. Yeah, dealing with memories. But the memories are triggered by, at least hopefully, the memories are triggered by reality that happened. You know, how good are your memories? Uh, Did the Buddha um, uh, say anything about the relationship between, uh, I'm I'm not sure if this terminology was around, but just the sense of uh, your conscience and Vedna, you know, like something when you do something unethical or you, you, right. you start, you, it feels unpleasant. Yeah. And, you know, just to notice that for me would not be an, enough. And but then how but then you have guilt versus like actually making a change, you, you know, just mm-hmm. conch your conscience and Vedna. Right. He talked about Hiri and Otapa, moral shame and moral dread. Moral shame is you'd be ashamed to do that thing because people would think bad of you. I mean, you you don't want to be known as a bank robber because, you know, your friends would think that that's not a good thing. And then moral dread, you're afraid to do it because it's going to send you off to jail or there'll be serious consequences. You don't want to rob the bank because 
you'll go to jail, right? And he said those two were the guardian of the world and that one should pay attention to them. He didn't, I don't remember anything where he's specifically mentioning Vedna, but that it's very important to know the sense of moral shame and moral dread, the, the sense of this is not a thing that people would look up to me if I did, and the sense of if I did that, I'm going to be in big trouble. And to keep those handy and know those feelings when they arise because they are very much guidelines for how to behave. So they are the, a, a basis for ethical behavior. Right. Do you have another question? I'm not sure it's important. I, I just, as you were talking earlier, um, you said an unpleasant sensation. And I'm thinking maybe it's not the sensation or the sound or whatever it is that's inherently unpleasant. It's, it's the filter. Right. right. Like I said, most of what we experience as unpleasant is the downstream stuff. Okay. Right. I mean, okay, you hear an airplane fly over and you think it actually sounds nice because you're going to Hawaii on an airplane tomorrow. And you're going to have this great time. And so the, the sound was, but actually the sound was unpleasant. But you didn't experience the unpleasantness of the sound because downstream you started thinking about your trip to Hawaii and all the pleasant thoughts that were associated with that. Or, as one of my students said, she was out doing a Vedana walk, you know, and everything that she saw, she was watching how her mind goes pleasant, unpleasant. And she sees this blue. Oh, very pleasant. And then she recognizes it as a garbage can. Oh, unpleasant. Right. So the blue color was pleasant. But then the perception came of what the blue color was. Garbage can, nasty, smelly, germy, all this sort of stuff. Now it was negative. The blue hadn't changed color at all. But the experience had changed because of the downstream thinking and emoting triggered by the visual input. Okay, so, yes? Well, that brings to mind that it's not really the collar that triggered the downstream negative. It was the shape recognized as a garbage can. Right, exactly. So, I just thought, well, then things are made up of more than one thing. I mean, their shape and their color, for example. So, and then you have different reactions. Mm-hmm. So, one object is made can be is made up of both. That's what I guess. Right. The, you have the colored shape that your eye perceives. You have the perception, which interprets what it is, gives it a name, and then you have all the thoughts and emotions, and you attribute all of that to the object, even though. Only the colored shape was perceived by you. Okay, but all of these other ideas and everything else. I mean, the stinky, smelly garbage can with all the germs, the stink wasn't experienced, the smell wasn't experienced, the germs weren't experienced. It was just still a colored shape. Right? But the mind knows that, yeah, it's a garbage can, it's going to stink, and it's going to have germs in it and all this other stuff. And that's attributed to this colored shape. I mean, she could have walked up there and it was a brand new one and it had no no garbage in it, which wasn't the case. But we do that with everything. 
we get in some sort of perception, we identify it, we think and emote around it, and then we project all of our stuff back onto it, and it's out there. And actually all we know it about what's really out there is the colored shape. Can I... Um yeah. I just, um, I'm thinking, I went to see this really wonderful movie. It's a documentary called God Grew Weary of Us, or okay. God Grew Tired of Us. Have you heard of that? No. Uh, well, um, it's, it's about, um, well, I don't want to, it's, it's about cu- cultural um, mix. Um, people who come to this country from somewhere else, and they're totally unfamiliar with a lot of our objects. And so they go through this whole learning curve mm-hmm. of, well, what do you do with this? You know, and it's like the toilet, you know. <laughs> right. So, you know, this is an example. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have to give meaning to these things to be able to deal with them. And then we project that meaning back out onto the object as not recognizing that it's, the meaning is happening in here. And behind you, question. How about the unpleasantness of dealing with real pain? You can have touch sensation, such as you sprained your ankle. That's touch sensation that's coming in, and it's very unpleasant Vedana, right? And then there's all the emotional stuff. My ankle is sprained. I'm not going to be able to go on the trip. I can't even walk. This is horrible. So now you add on top of that all of the negative stuff with all the thoughts and emotions that arise because of the sprained ankle or any other physical energy, in, injury. And that, that's, you know, fifth sense, the touch sensation. And yeah, unpleasant Vedna. <coughs> okay, so we're going to do a brief little guided meditation on Vedna. What we're going to do, this one helps if you're pretty concentrated. So I'm going to let you sit for about 10 minutes and get, get as concentrated as you can in 10 minutes. And then I'm going to make some sounds up here. All right. And see if you can notice the sound Vedana. Right? Like the first thing I'm going to do is ring the bell. That doesn't mean it's over. All right. Notice the sound and notice how your mind reacts. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And I'll make some more sounds. And for each sound, see if you can stay right with the sound itself and the pleasant or unpleasant of the sound. The tendency is going to be to wander off down to, you know, identifying it and commenting on it and so forth. But see if you can stay right with the sound itself. Okay? So, we'll have about ten minutes to get concentrated.
listen to the airplane. And most of those sounds were pretty neutral. Maybe a little negative. But could you notice what the mind did with them? Could you stay right with the Vedna it produced, or did you want to wander off and identify it and comment on it and everything else? So, this practice can be done anytime you're meditating it. You know, you can just simply get yourself concentrated because that's the only way you're going to be able to do it effectively is to actually get fairly concentrated. And then just open up your hearing and listen to the sounds that go by and notice what's pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. You can also do the same sort of thing and open up your hearing and watch your mind identify things. You know, car, airplane, sneeze. So work with the perception. And then you can work with the Vedana as well. And then you can just go sit someplace, particularly a place where there's things that are changing, and try and watch how your mind takes in visual stimuli and reacts to the colors of it, the colored shapes of it. Often it gets downstream really fast. I mean, if you're sitting at the mall and you're watching all these people go by, you're commenting on the people as opposed to just seeing the colored shapes. Can you drop back and just see the colored shapes? So, the questions, comments on this? It just occurred to me, like, uh, sometimes when I'm, I'm studying or reading papers or just trying to explain something that happened, it's uh, essentially the desire to know is, for me, I feel like it's dukkha, like, always wanting to, like, why did it happen? Try to what's the mechanism? Uh, whether it be in a social con or just just that drive, and I can feel it. And at the end of the day, I feel nauseous. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this actually helped me kind of like, oh, that's maybe what's happening. I don't know. And but to hold it like maybe that's what's happening is different from what's really happening. I got to really go home and read the suit. You know that kind of. Mm-hmm. I, I can't explain it. I, can't, I know what it feels like. Yeah, a drive to really understand. Yeah. The comment that I would have would be one of the most important things on the spiritual path is to be totally comfortable with, I don't know. Because guess what? There's a lot we don't know. It doesn't stop you from seeking out answers. 
But if you don't find the answer, yeah, okay, I don't know. Right? I mean, okay, where is Osama bin Laden? Pakistan, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Crawford, Texas. <laughs> Truth is, you don't know. Right? You just don't know. Might be any of those. Might be someplace else. He might be dead. Can you be comfortable with, I don't know. Right? That's, it's so important on the spiritual path. Because if you think you know and you don't know, well, you just committed yourself to living in ignorance. In delusion, perhaps. Right? It's, it's important to know when you don't know. It's probably more important to know when you don't know than to know when you do know. Right? So, yeah. And not knowing produces unpleasant Vedana. Right? Just anxious anxiety. Okay, we've got to do something about that. Let's make something up so we'll know. Well, that's not what we say, but that's what we do. Right? How did the world come to be? I don't know. Let's make something up and then we'll know. It was a giant ostrich. Right? So, yeah, being really comfortable with, I don't know. Because, yeah, a lot of the time, you don't know. I find the whole issue of sound here in the meditation hall problematic because I it's, it's really hard for me to hear the sound and, and do the and recognize the Vedna first because I'm in the meditation hall and I want silence mm-hmm. so what I've been trying to do is um, think sound waves whenever I hear a sound when I'm meditating sound waves sound mm-hmm. waves as a way to sort of sort sort circuit sort circuit short circuit <laughs> Mm-hmm. That particular problem is that. Like yeah, no, way? that's that's very skillful. There's all sorts of tricks we can play to keep us from getting caught up in the downstream stuff. You know, this is the trigger, right? And then there's all of our downstream stuff, and we want to go back and blame the trigger, right? Which, you know, that's pretty useless. Cars are going to be going up and down here no matter what. So if you can find a trick. They keep you from wandering off into all that stuff that's going on, all the downstream stuff. Use it. Yeah. Now, when you think of sound waves, do you think of them like this? Of course, they actually look like this. (laughs) But it doesn't matter, right? The trick is that you use a trick to stop the downstream stuff from happening. Just, okay, this is sound waves. Um, uh, this is, uh, seems to me useful for seeing how things, our minds work, and also, as you say, sometimes to keep from getting caught up in things mm-hmm. you know, that entangle us or something. But it also strikes me that it is also, um, the, the reason that it's useful, it's not always like a bad thing that we do that. Sometimes it, it's like a oh, good yeah. thing. I mean, it's not, you're not judging it as good or bad exactly. You're just observing that it's happening. Because sometimes we could say, well, we want to short circuit something because we get 
caught in mm-hmm. confused thoughts. But also, um, the downstreaming also is is uh, useful. Oh yeah, very yeah. definitely. We evolved the ability right. to do that. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not that it's wrong. Right. It's that you need to know what's actually happening. What is the external sensory input and what is its impact and what is your mental downstream stuff and what's going on with that? And is the man downstream stuff actually useful in this case? Sometimes it is. I mean, you put your hand on something hot and you think, oh, that's not good. This shouldn't be so hot. You know, maybe I should unplug it or whatever. That's that's a useful thing. You just prevented a fire. Right? And you put your hand on it and you go, hot, hot, yeah, really hot, very hot, burning my fingers. Yeah, this is, this is going to be really painful. And that's not good, right? So, yeah, um, even though you were totally in the present, really experiencing what was going on, it wasn't a useful thing to do. It was much more useful to get downstream, realize something's wrong here, this needs to be unplugged, right? So, yeah, the fact that we have created this amazing civilization that we live in is because of our ability to go downstream with the sensory input. Nothing wrong with it as long as it doesn't get misused or misunderstood. We do have a tendency, however, to do both of those. So that's why it's important to know that's what's happening. And one of the ways is to come back up to the Vedana and watch how that's triggering what's happening afterwards, which may or may not be a good thing. The, the, the what's triggered after may or may not be a good thing. A good thing. Yeah. Other about Faden. This is a really key point in the Buddhist teachings. Uh, not exciting and sexy like pulling your organs out or anything, but it's definitely a good place to work. He talks a lot about um, sound. What about other stuff like taste, smell? Yeah, all all the same things. Yeah, you can also work with those. Try eating a meal. And for each forkful, notice the Vedana of the taste and the Vedana of the texture. Notice how the Vedana change as you chew it and grind it up and get a lot of saliva in it. Does the taste get better or worse? Stay the same. right? And notice... The texture, the same thing. So, eating is a very good place to work with Vedana. Right? Uh, smells, especially if you go hiking out in the woods where there's lots of different smells. You know, you can just open up your senses and try and smell. Uh, you know, something rotting it may actually smell good. You know, if you can just get past the first weirdness of it. Uh, so, yeah, you can play with all the senses. Sound is a good one to work with initially because it's just going to be coming. I mean, you've been on retreat and you expected it to be quiet and it really wasn't that quiet. I mean, there were, right? Okay, it's never quite quiet enough as much as you'd like. So sounds are going to be coming. You don't have to do anything about it. And yet, you can ignore most of them safely, right? And they're not so overwhelming. With the visual, you get overwhelmed really quickly, right? Try sitting with your eyes closed, you know, get really concentrated, then open your eyes and pick up the Vedana. No, you're just overwhelmed with everything that's coming in. And you really have to work at it and back off. So sound's an easy one to work with. Tastes are easy to work with. And then you can start playing with textures and smells. Meanwhile, trying not to get caught up in all the mental 
fade and other get generated. So is this what um, is this part of reactivity? When people talk about reactivity, which is a pretty popular word. <laughs> yeah, what they're talking about is a sense impression comes in and then somebody reacts. And when they say reactivity, they're saying reacts in a way that I didn't really want them to react. Yeah. So it's the downstream stuff that's usually the problematic. that we project back or act upon or something like that. We don't usually stop with just the external sensory input. That's pretty rare. Okay, I think we should take a break. A ten-minute break at ten to four. We'll come back and try and cover the other two foundations so we can get out of here by five o'clock. Okay, so short break.